You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. Psychiatrist Natalie King's supervisor needs her help, but is it to get over the death of his first pregnant wife or to plan the murder of his second that's the back of a very exciting book by Anne Buist called Dangerous to Know. And the protagonist is Natalie King, forensic psychiatrist. And I am in conversation this morning with Anne Buist, who is also a forensic psychiatrist. Welcome, Anne. Well, um, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I have uh, read this book from cover to cover, and I must say that I don't ever expect to be totally engaged by books. You know, I, I, I have, because I have read many that don't engage me. So I started off casually reading and then as the novel progressed, I got more and more into it. And really, it is a page turner, a page burner. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Because that's what psychological thriller is kind of designed to do, to be a page turner. So I'm pleased that for at least you it worked. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> did. And, you know, with psychological thrillers, I find that there's not many out there that are convincing enough to make you think and make you, you know, read through. I like the beginning. Lady Caroline Lamb of Lord Byron says, Mad, bad and dangerous to know. So I love the title. Please tell me about this book and how you came to write it. Well, I am. Um, I introduced Natalie King in the previous book, Medea's Curse, and... Mm. Always in my head there's been an arc of three or four books um, and it was really around the arc of Natalie and so we pick up Natalie from the end of the last one but this book stands alone and I really wanted um, a, a, something that would, would make us see some of the aspects of her character and the things that she was dealing with as well as having a background story that was engrossing and interesting. So in the first book we saw a little bit of her 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 troubles and the things that she's fighting against like she's like, not very lucky in love. No. Not not no she's not. Um but that's in part uh because she's still working herself out. She um has bipolar disorder which um like many crime books the the heroine or hero has to have something that they're battling with and in her case it's bipolar disorder and as the case with many people that suffer from bipolar disorder it's it's a hard to accept um, they like to feel on the high side and and that can feel fantastic if it can feel like you can, can achieve anything do anything until it gets so extreme that it runs puts them into all sorts of risky situations so we saw a little bit of that in the first book but Can I ask you about bipolar? Is that the case, um, like Asperger's, that we're all on the spectrum? You know, there are some people who are more bipolar than others, is, or is that is that a layman's I, I, fallacy? Yeah, look, I, I think I would call that a, that not the case, though. That I think that's true that we all can identify with with a range of moods, and in a sense, the bipolar has just a much bigger range. But we have evidence that there's a, a genetic predisposition to this disorder and 
that there are certain triggers such as sleep deprivation, having a baby that can set this off. So there are some very specific biological components and at its most extreme, uh, it can have some psychotic elements and has very high suicide rates. So this, this is a serious mental illness, but one which can be well managed. But in the early days of diagnosis, it's quite common and in Natalie's case to really fight against it and to want to play a bit with the meds to try and just stay a little high. And I think one of the things, there's been a lot of work done on bipolar and creativity and a lot of artists, journalists, writers have been um, bipolar and they find that if they take mood stabilizers, they lose that creativity. So in the first book... Is that true? I, yeah. I wasn't sure that that would be true. Yeah, yeah, no, look, it appears to be very much the case. Um, and a lot of my patients uh, take a long time to accept the mood stabilizer because it dulls them. Um, they feel that they're not that you know, exciting. They, they feel like they're losing part of themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Natalie is battling with. But at the in-between books, um, she has a major depressive episode. So we start Dangerous to Know with her recovering from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not depressed in the book because that's not really wasn't going to work with the story but she's recovering so you see that side of the bipolar I like that she's vulnerable you know because I mean psychiatrists and psychologists um, they're all human too and they have their own vulnerabilities don't they absolutely and mental illness affects us all in all walks of life in all um professions um all classes uh, it goes across and certainly i know a number of lawyers and a number of psychiatrists and doctors with bipolar disorder it's certainly compatible with having a successful stable life but it does require um you know well taking medication managing things like sleep uh, and and looking after yourself. And this is what Natalie's trying to do in this book. This is part of her growing up, um, part of her accepting her limitations. Uh, she's still struggling against it. She's still very much feisty and, and not wanting to give up part of herself, mm. but it's coming to terms with, with who she is. She's a strong character, and I, and I like that, that the characters in the book are they're not... Um, flat characters they're they're multi-dimensional and look that's really important to me and it's important to make for all the characters um in my book including the the villains um that they're not just evil that they're if they are doing bad things there are reasons why that makes sense of that behavior um i don't think there's very many people that get up in the morning and kind of think i'm just going to do evil today um and even psychopaths uh have some motivations for for the things that yes. they do so um have you treated psychopaths uh, look i've certainly interviewed them but haven't worked with them um partly because of the clientele the forensic psychiatry I do is purely related to perinatals so it's virtually only women I'm seeing I do see their partners but in a forensic sense setting I tend to only see the women and I have yet to see one who is just pure evil Um, these are women who have found themselves in difficult circumstances with multiple issues social drugs and mental illness and this interplay um, and complexity that has led to them um, be doing something um, evil, if you like, but but not that they set out to do that. And they certainly have remorse and regrets and grief and guilt regarding it, which is not true of psychopaths. Um, and in Helen Garner's, uh, her latest book, in fact, she talks about um, her essays, why she wrote House of Grief um, was that 
she's she comments that um, no nowhere in the book that she says he's evil and indeed she wouldn't have wanted to write the book if he was because it wouldn't have been of any interest to her and in many ways that's that's true of me we can't work with people who don't want to get better anyway um, but the people I'm working with are much more complex and they have very sad stories. Talking about Helen Garner, Joe Cinque's uh, consolation. <laughs> consolation um, that seems to be an evil character, does it? Does it well, not? Again, and I loved the book. I haven't seen the movie, um, but she doesn't have a chance really to interview the the female per- perpetrator. So she she wonders about it. So she certainly talks about personality disorders, which is probably the diagnosis we associate with evil, rather than yes. psychosis, which is your mind is not rational and you're not thinking. Um, normal, normally you might be having voices talking to you, telling you to do yeah. things. So you're not really making decisions with a psychotic illness Psych- in the way episodes. that yeah. you you do if you're a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And certainly the people like Anders Breivik, the, the murderer, um, one of us is a book about him. And there's a question of is he, was he psychotic or was he personality disordered and the weight kind of came towards the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then there were reasons to explain some of his behaviours and how he got to that that terrible spot to where he got to. It's interesting when you diagnose people that you can't interview. That's a nice point. It just mm. uh, occurred to me that I've, I was recently in Europe at the Van Gogh Museum and there's a there's an exhibition of his madness. And what interested me most was that um, many psychiatrists from today were diagnosing him just based on the history. Mm. Yeah, and <laughs> so. obviously we don't have a chance to meet him. Um, no. But there's a lot of information about him and some of his behaviours, quite bizarre behaviours, like cutting off his ears, yes. really, to me, reeks of a way of trying to make, trying to get rid of the auditory hallucinations and these voices talking to him. I mean, it's very symbolic, cutting one's ear off. Now, yes. whether that was the case, I don't know. But right. I mean, he's been varyingly diagnosed as schizophrenia, schizoaffective and bipolar, I think. So right. there's a spectrum there, but all of which encompass a psychotic illness yes. with a mood and probably with a mood component. Yes. Well, I, I think that um, uh, you're so you're eminently qualified to write such a book, and I'm assuming you've got more. In the, in the series, you just mentioned mm-hmm. a, yeah. a series. You're... Yeah, look, I was going to have four, but I think at this stage I've, I've just finished draft two and on to draft three of the third in the series, and I'll probably leave it as a trilogy, though I will... I'm not, I promise not to kill her off so I can always um, do for, bring her back, bring her back <laughs> later um, if needed. But I, there's a sort of a... There's an arc she needs to go through, and I'm going to bring that to the end at um, the end of the third one. But they'll all stand on their own um, mm-hmm. and can be read, you know, separate from from each other. And uh, Sophie Hannah um, said something which I thought was nice: is that you know, when you meet a person, you meet them at a certain time in their life, and then you move forward with them. But then you hear about their past, so that's kind of like going back and reading others in the previous series, if you you like. Yes, one... so you could very well read Dangerous to Know and then go and read Medea's Curse, yeah. which I think um, Jennifer Byrne was was very generous with her comment yeah. about that in the Women's Weekly. She's I can't can't remember the exact words, but she. Said it was a true thriller, a true psychological thriller, yeah. something like that. And look, that was about infanticide, and I think that was a bit of a confronting to a lot of people. Though it's it's not a Patricia Cornell novel with blood and um, no, you know it's, no. it's it's a psychological, it's a who done it yeah. um, and a why. It was more of a why done it. In fact, um, obviously there's a who component too, mm. um, and, and dangerous to know 
is very much about that too. It's um, So she ends up down the country. She's decided for a quieter life. She's doing research, um, but gets pulled into this story where her she starts to wonder about what really happened to her boss's first pregnant wife. And there's now a second pregnant wife who is someone she knows and feels she owes and, and gets pulled into this story in a sort of a cat and mouse game with Frank, her boss. Uh, who starts to confide in her. Mm. And it's really a story about his family, um, the pathology in his family, and about the power in the family, but then the power between him and her and where that sits and how she uses it and how she uses her psychiatric knowledge to make sense of what has happened um, and then it's what continues to happen. It's intricate in the way you've got them um, interacting and it occurred to me that uh, I think... Um, the male character says sees her as an equal and I thought to myself yeah she is actually the the backwards and forwards it Mm. seems to me I got the impression that one moment she was on top the next moment he was in terms of power Mm. power play Mm. and that's that's a dynamic that's hard to create so congratulations (laughs) on doing that (laughs) so well I had had a lot of fun with it and um with Medea's curse, in the end, I needed a, a mechanism to drive it and, and increase the tension. And she's, as she's going through, she's being stalked, and the stalking becomes increasingly close to home. In this book, dangerous to know though, it's um, I'm alternating chapters, usually just a, a one page of Frank first person. So we have this potentially unreliable witness. Um, giving his views and and so we we're in his head and we know stuff that natalie doesn't know but then we have to ask ourselves do we really know this and is is frank really telling us as it is or has he wants to see it so that's in many ways driving um what's happening and of course quite sort of i guess the first act turning point is where something happens in his second marriage and then um it starts to pick up pace fairly quickly after that yes the pace is excellent and i think that's that's a secret of a a good psychological thriller is that you have to have that pace now a lot of our listeners are emerging writers and other writers (laughs) um from a writer's uh, uh, point of view, the art of writing, uh, can you tell me how you go about writing a psychological thriller? Do you know the outcome? Do you, do you set out the plot? What do you do? Um, well, look, I'm a planner um, and I do have it broadly planned out chapter by chapter, just like just a couple of lines on each chapter, this is what's going to happen. Now, I don't always completely stick to that and sometimes I get to say what's chapter eight and find out there's too much for one chapter um, and because there's an alternating Frank um, and Natalie, then I have to had to swap that. But by and large, I know what the chapter's got to cover. I'm pretty good at picking how long those chapters are going to be, that it will fit okay. Now, that said... I, had the, I knew Natalie from the previous night, well, I knew her really well. I knew who the new hero was going to be because I introduced him in the first one, but he now had to be fleshed out, so that kind of took me. And the old hero also returns, uh, and I had him. So I had some, had two characters I knew really well. I had one I developed a bit, but then there was Frank, so it took me a while to kind of really get into his head and work out what was happening with him. When I started off, I didn't know who did it. Um, I had a couple of options. and um, ah, So you didn't I, decide until I later? I didn't then. decide <laughs> until later as to which of the two options, or actually there were three. Um, and in the original um, draft, 
there was actually a whole thing with a bikey gang um, which involved her drummer and it was really complicated and some of the, the feedback on the day's curse was it was a little complicated and I thought actually I don't really need this backstory it's just getting in the way yes. and I don't really know anything about bikey gangs um, so why don't I stick to what I know I do know family psychopathology very well I've dealt with lots of families and so I cut all of that out um, and really didn't it, it enhanced the story and so that also having taken that back plot out I then it made much more sense of who was going to do it and as I got to know my characters more through the book it that they kind of told me who did it became <laughs> very clear and and you're you're very fortunate in terms of being married to another writer I I, I envy you I would love to be married to another writer so tell me whether, whether I think it has to be a very specific writer oh absolutely <laughs> he's not only a great writer he's a great editor um, and, and very encouraging we can talk plot together he's very smart even though he's not a psychiatrist he he, he gets human motivation and that's yeah. um, and whilst he would love me to you know stand up in public forums and say as did the wife of Michael Shabon um, who's a writer herself Aylet her surname. <laughs> yes. um, what I've said. He he's the uh, the best writer in the English language. And when Graham heard her say that, he said to me, because we were in the audience, feel free to say that about me anytime <laughs> you like. <laughs> and I do think he's a great writer. Um, well, I interviewed the Dando Collins as uh, uh, just recently, both of them separately, both writers again, like you, and. Um, and uh, Louise said of Stephen, he is the best writer. So there you go. You've got to... Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> of course, did you, did you say to him that feel free to say the same about me? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so tell me, but you're not actually a new writer. I heard you on the radio yesterday say that you've been writing for a long, long time. Oh, well, at eight I was only writing parag- first sentences that progressed to paragraphs. By 15, I had a couple of handwritten books that I've completed and still have them, and they're hilariously bad. Um, <laughs> sort of like, oh, yeah, it's a little bit of uh, Jules Jim Carner meets in- an Eden Blyton and throw in a bit of Twilight, I suppose. <laughs> pretty awful. That's the, that's the bad thing about print. I mean, e-books is in, you know, another kettle of fish altogether, but in print, you know, the first book I wrote in 1995, I can't look at it, it's so bad. Oh, yeah, well, and mine never got beyond the, the handwritten folders, fortunately. Um, but then I, I started writing much more seriously in my 30s, three unpublished manuscripts still sitting there. And interestingly, I've taken one of the themes from one of those and some of the, the, the ideas and they're now in the third Natalie book, um, This I Would Kill wow. For, which I hope will come out next year. Um, but What's it with, called? Uh, it's going to be called This I Would Kill For. Wow. And That's great titles. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm very keen. I'm very pleased with that title. It just really yes. fits with where it's at. It's going to be about child custody. Well, it is about it. Haven't handed into my editor yet about yes. child custody, right? Um, and yeah, yeah, the sort of dilemmas we get ourselves into in lies, right. the family set, so right? And and um, you've written in other genres too. Yes, and then you? so I had had my ten thousand hours of practice while writing the three unpublished manuscripts, two of which got to the last phase at Random House, but then I've got three full length novels and 
seven novellas, which are in print under a pseudonym. Um, which you're not going to tell us. <laughs> uh, you can easily find it out. But they were practised. They were erotic romance suspense, so mm. very, very explicit sex. But I was really practising um, with with the storytelling. Mm. And the, the last... Well, sex scenes are very hard to do. As, as I had a lot of fun with and sex scenes. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> you have a talent uh, for that. Well, I don't know about that, but they were a lot of fun. But I, look, I don't think there is necess- necessary in mainstream. I mean, I have some some sort of hot moments in in because Natalie is quite as is in keeping with her character, quite sexually driven, mm. um, and you know is asking is, is an equal in that with the men mm. in her life, and I think that's an important part of her character. Mm. Um, but. Graham and I are writing a book together, and sex is oh, not. I can't wait for that. <laughs> but no. sex is not so much a part of the character of that woman. Um, so yes. it's the sex is going to be much more demure. <laughs> yes, it's a bit. It would be a bit confronting if it was. It was, you know. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're writing as people who are married, so yes, so yeah. oh, they're, they're definitely some, not us. These no, characters. No, you need to you need to put a disclaimer there. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, people are going to look at you strangely. <laughs> and not that I know what it's about. But oh, well, I, th- I think we already get that from Graham's uh, "The Best of Adam Sharp." Is that there's some fairly hot sex scenes, mm. though they've been toned down considerably since he first yes. the first draft. But because it's set. Uh, a lot of it's set in a house that resembles our house in France. People who have stayed in the house kind of go, <laughs> when they get to the, the bit where they recognise the bedroom and the fireplace and all of these things. And it's, uh, right, yes. interesting. Um, and so so you've got, yeah, I, I, I love the fact that you're mentioning 10,000 hours of practice. Well, at Tell least. Me, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got 18 years of study to be a professor of psychiatry because um, it's a medical course. I did a master's, then I did an MD. I've st- and also, a perpetual student. Well, yes, and, and my five years of psychiatry training, plus yeah. just all the extra um, research and clinical experience mm-hmm. I've had. Were you married to Graham in that or, yeah, entire yeah, time? Yeah, so yeah, we've been so. married. Well, he, I was not quite qualified when we got together, but um, he helped me through that last year of getting my dissertation and everything in. Um, Fabulous. And, yeah, yeah so he's and, – and I've known him since I was – well, before I started psych training, so I was an mm. intern when I first met him. Um, so right. we've been friends before we became partners. Mm. Um, and – yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey together, really. And and it's wonderful because the journey seems to be um, uh, one from, from disparate fields but coming together. Yeah, sort of, and look, I think that's yeah. kind of, you know, been a wonderful part of our relationship. We've always had plans and things together and like whether it was to do six months sabbatical, um, take long service leave and go and walk the Camino the first time. Um, there were things we planned together, we're very passionate about together mm-hmm. uh, and... It's always been that way that we've kind of had. Mm. What made you walk the Camino twice? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's really first... an unusual. Yeah. Well, particularly as it was the long one because we started from the yeah. centre of France all the way to the border, so that was about a thousand kilometres. And then the first time we, instead of doing the traditional Camino Francis, we walked around the coast, so it was two thousand and thirty-eight kilometres. And we we chose the the unfamiliar or the least known mm. way because we didn't want the crowds, mm. and it was our long service or my long service leave. And I really needed some time out. I was re- well, both of us really was sort of around turning fifty-ish that sort of time. I'd been under a lot of stress at work. Um, Graham had had a, a health crisis. It was really an evaluation, and it was a lot of time in our own heads, a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that walk, 
uh, I decided I was going to go part-time and try and write again. And that's when all those erotic romances kind of got published. And I started writing Medea's Curse in the background, initially as non-fiction, and then I switched over to fiction and um, yeah. published it. And, yeah, I'm not doing the erotic romance anymore. Um, <laughs> you don't don't need to. You, you... Well, I'm much, much... This is psychological thrillers. It, it's got much more my genre. I read a lot of it, whereas I don't read romance. Mm. Um, I like the romance subplot, but I don't like it to be confined by the romance uh, mm. genre where... Heroes have to be noble, um, and you're the really restricted. And type, type yeah, romance. and well, even it's I mean, formulaic, isn't it? Well, there are certain rules you've got to do, and I really felt restricted by them in the the, the stuff I was writing before, because were um, you self publishing or no, 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 it's, it's uh, no Siren. Um, it's an Siren. American publisher, right. um, mainly e-books, though you, mm. I do have paper versions of them. Um, but the heroes had to be noble, um, and I mean, I just broke that all in in Medea's curse she's having an affair with a married man um you're not allowed to do that in romance um it's it's Mm. but I wanted it happens in real life and I wanted to show why a single girl might do this why would I mean my mother would have said just why would you be so stupid um but she has reasons um and so does he um and that's part of both of their arcs it's not black and white life is gray absolutely and psychiatry is gray and and and, um, in Dangerous to Know, I finish off the story, which kind of gets finished off at the end of Medea's Curse, the, the subplot of Georgia, who was um, charged with killing three of her children. And the court case happens in Dangerous to Know, even though that's not the main plot. But I needed to be able to bring Liam O'Shea back into Natalie's life um, for reasons that become obvious by the end of the book. Um, and that was always in my head that that was going to happen, um, that she hadn't quite got here him out from underneath her skin and uh, so but I found Georgia got under my skin as well and found I really had to finish that story off uh, and and resolve it in a, in a and some of these way. characters are they um, you draw on your own your own practice don't you mm. I mean they're well disguised but they mm. are real people aren't they well, they're not real people, but if you a comp, comp, compilation, but what you find is that there are common themes um, in all of the, these forensic cases I see, whether it's abuse or it's infanticide. Um, there's common themes in all of them, um, and it's sort of picking that up. Like if um, in the first uh, book there was a, a character called Jesse who had borderline personality disorder, and Every patient I see with borderline is different, yet they're all the same. Uh, there, there is those common themes about um, mm. their uncertainty about who they are, their um, effective instability, their self-harm, their, their sense of emptiness. So that doesn't make them the same person, but you obviously got some really common themes and that's the sort of thing I work with all the time and then it's mm. about fleshing that character out to make them mm. a real person that's not a real person. <laughs> it's a yeah. fictional yeah. person um, with those those themes mm. kind so of it sounds to me you love your work as well as writing um do you plan on giving up the work side and doing more no writing? look I, I, I do love my work very passionate and for many years i was running the beyond blue personal depression program and trying to get screening brought into around australia and i may continue to be passionate about that so i've got a, a great boss uh who in the university of melbourne have been very obliging as well so that I can I do my work in blocks so for the at the moment I'm in the country and so we'll work covering the mother baby unit over Christmas but then I can have months off 
and uh, I have some PhD students, but I can do a lot of that by email, and I am around enough to have meetings with them, uh, and my teaching likewise, I can do in blocks, and when I'm in town, I know I'm in town, and so I book in the medico-legal cases that I do. Right, and so so you think you'll continue in that way for quite some time? I'm hoping time. so, I'm hoping yeah. so. Yeah. And uh, a couple of questions about writing. What has been your greatest uh, lesson that you've learned? That you know, for for newly emerging writers, um, really interesting. Um, I'm a, when I was writing the my the erotic romances, absolutely hated rewriting. I can't tell you how I hated rewriting and editing, and. Watching Graham and the the pain and time he put into the rewriting of all of his books has gave me a very different attitude to, to Medea's Curse, which was my first mainstream one. And I actually changed my entire attitude and I actually enjoy, unbelievably, um, the rewriting process. It's the, the old, you know, rewriting is making it better. Any feedback, you take it on board you, and make your own decision about it but it's helping make it better. And sometimes that criticism, I mean, you give it to trusted people who you respect and they will give it constructively, which is great, um, because, you know, looking up on Goodreads and, you know, one-line crap is really, really unhelpful. Um, And not everyone is ever going to like your work. Uh, That's, you know, even fabulous books that have got Booker Prizes or books like The Book Thief. Even, you know, no one likes, gives five... There's no book that everyone gives five out of five for, and no. you've got. So that's one. That's the second important the lesson: is understanding that there's a whole range of people who are going to see different things in your work, and not letting that get to you. But the first one was to actually respect your work. And I had this thing about I had to cut the umbilical cord and never wanted to see it again. But I at least delay cutting the umbilical cord until the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting until I'm really happy with it. And to me, that's the difference between genre romance, the ones that are doing, coming out, you know, every three months there's a new book. And, and certainly my fellow authors in the romance, um, the, the, or the uh, publisher that I was, they were putting out at least four a year. And there's no way you can do that and have the quality of writing that I now would aspire to um and so that was the first and then the second was just yeah take constructive criticism but don't read good reads <laughs> okay and um at the greatest aha moment you've had to date um the moment the moment I, I shouldn't say an aha moment the most exhilarating moment that you've had um ooh, <laughs> no, that's a hard one um I have lots of those. I mean, I, I'm, good? I'm a little <laughs> bit, uh, I, I'm, I have all of the positives of, of Natalie with none of the negatives in that you know, I don't go manic, but I live, and so does Graham, we tend to be a little on the high kind of, we're very active and enthusiastic and I don't get lows for any length of time. I mean, I, everyone has some lows and flat yes. periods, but, but don't get very low or don't get very high, but tend to run a little high. Um, so I really enjoy anything, but uh, every, all of the opportunities, um, it wasn't an aha moment, but the, the best presentation or the one I enjoyed the most was Graham and I doing a joint one at the Sydney Writers Festival. Just everything clicked. The audience gave us great feedback. The interviewer was just really on board with us. We laughed. We had a load of fun. Oh, we must um, go and see that one. Well, it's probably um, still up there. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if it was filmed or not. Um, but it was that was a lot of fun. But uh, I mean, aha moments about sort of writing. Um, 
sort of in the, the, the way I've been talking about the rewriting and that, there's been um, a lot of moments of learning and being really open to those of of really understanding how you can make it better. And because I haven't studied a course, a writing course, I mean, I've done a couple of um, CAE courses, like one night a week for 12 weeks, did one with Carmel Bird and one with Gary, Gary Disher, um, and I did a masterclass with Anthony Jack, which was great. But still a lot of the learning was happening right sitting there and then um, doing it and experiencing it. And there's been a few of those of, oh, my God, that reads so much better. <laughs> and sometimes you can put it away and come back to it. And that's where these, this churning out is a problem because you don't have a chance to actually um, just put it aside. So this I would kill for. I've been writing um, Left, Right, which is the one that Graham and I have been doing. So I've been doing that constantly for the last three months. Hadn't looked at um, this I would kill for. It was off with readers. And now I've just come back to it and it's I felt totally fresh. I have lots of aha, ah, no, no, I can get rid of that. That's not going to work. Looking at the constructive criticism from a fabulous um, uh, author friend um, that, yeah, why did I put that in there? I don't need that there. <laughs> yeah, so so but you need to be fresh to yeah. look at that. Um, and it's hard. Once you're in it, you just mm. – so, so Graham's now got left, right, and I've been trying to edit as in cut stuff out. And I've gone over it and over it and over it again, managed to get out 800 words, and we were trying to get out 5,000. And he's come fresh to it after a three-month break, and he's well, affecting longer than that probably. Um, so and he's and he's slashing, burning, going, don't need that, don't need that. And it's kind of, yeah, Fantastic. I just got too bogged into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, I, uh, I really wish you all the best for this wonderful book, Dangerous to Know, and the next one in the series. And I can't wait for the, the, the left-right book. That, yeah. that well, hopefully be that'll be out at the end of next year as well. Fabulous. We'll have to catch up with you again yeah. and talk about that. It'll be great. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you, Suzanne. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au. And if you are a reader or a writer, then hop on over to our website and subscribe.